it's your boy, and welcome to episode 70-fucking-five of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Congratulations, folks. We have reached the three-quarter mark on our way to 100 episodes. And today, if you're tuning into the podcast the way I hope you will, there's going to be something very different. So today is going to be the first episode where we launch the video podcast. So since, since everyone's ignored the YouTube channel up until now because I've only been uploading the audio and uh, YouTube, is not an, <laughs> YouTube is not an audio platform, so of course people don't tune in there. Uh, most of you have been tuning into, I believe, App, I don't know, I think it's we've seesawed, Spotify and Apple Podcast. Those are the two platforms that people listen on. But, um, you know, I've been recording video for these episodes probably as far back as episode 53 or um, sometime in the 50s. Uh, I just, they've been uploaded, I just haven't shared them, they're not public. Um, nothing's changed, though. <laughs> All the videos are the same as I'm filming it today. So I figured at the three-quarter mark... I feel I felt it would be appropriate to make the videos public. So I think I'm going to start with this one first. And if you like it, if you watch it, if you comment that you want to see more of these, I'll not only continue doing it with the rest of the episodes, but I'll also make uh, the backlog episodes public. So um, it's going to be hard to find the YouTube channel on YouTube. So do this instead. Go to our website at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. And in the post for the latest episode, you should see the YouTube video link right there. Uh, once you click through to that, you can certainly watch on the website, but if you do click through, you'll be able to see the YouTube channel. Um, and I don't know, subscribe, uh, bookmark it, come back, um, get notifications, whatever the fuck you do with YouTube. And uh, you'll be um, notified when we post new episodes. And, you know, there's not going to be a lot of editing. There's not going to be video clips. It's not that type of show. It's, there's, there's just going to be a video component to this stream of consciousness. You'll see me um, probably looking off to the side a lot, trying to look into the camera. Um, but otherwise, you know, I just have to get in my zone or else I get too self-conscious. So anyway, the video aspect of the podcast launches today at thisismpod.com. Check it out, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, <laughs> first things first. Um, we have a prospective MVP. I know we just announced my brother as the MVP of the podcast for this year, but we have a prospective MVP named Davis who has been listening to the podcast for a long time but has been a big supporter of mine for a long time, uh, including my music. And just when you start to forget about Davis, he pops up in your life and reminds you that he's watching what you're doing and is supporting you. And that's always been very encouraging. Um, he sent me a message about last week's episode or I don't I don't even remember what I was talking I don't even remember what I was talking about but I was talking about the what I was calling the Chicago way a dollar right I was probably I don't know I was probably talking about currency um now you may know Chicago as Sacagawea right famous indigenous american um and I've been pronouncing the name Sacagawea my whole life and as soon as I came out to the bay area I had someone correct me and let me know that that was the cracker-ass cracker way of pronouncing Sacagawea. So I took that on. I felt corrected, and I thought, oh, I, I've been mispronouncing it like a cracker-ass cracker my whole life. And so from thenceforth, I referred to Sacagawea by what I thought was the appropriate name, 
Sacagawea. Now, Davis, great guy, uh, not only did he not know what the fuck I was talking about when I said that, but he wanted to cor- uh, correct my pronunciation and sent me the Google pronounce feature that shows you how they pronounce it. And sure as shit, they pronounce it Sacagawea. So I'm confused. You know, the world is changing for me. It's upside down. I don't know what to believe anymore. But um, for those of you who are listening to the last episode and heard me say Sacagawea and didn't know what the fuck I was talking about, I was talking about Sacagawea. <clears throat> um, otherwise, it's kind of been a busy week for me. I had my first round of the vaccine uh, earlier this week, which um, it, it's just uh, it, it's a strange time we're living in. There's a part of me that wishes I had taken photos or video or something like that. Um, it was done out in uh, here in the Bay Area. There's a you know, the county is called Alameda County, and so out in the Alameda County Fairgrounds, which is in Pleasanton, they have this huge uh, site set up with tents and all this sorts of stuff. And uh, you know, obviously, they're they're making the vaccine available for people in waves. And even though I it, through my work, I'm able to work remotely and I don't deal with patients directly. There was a component of our agency that does have an outpatient program, and because I happen to work there, I qualify for the vaccine. So um, only a limited number of people are allowed on site. There's no walk-up. You know, you have to have an appointment. You have to meet a certain criteria. There's no uh, walk-up vaccinations or anything like that. So you come on site. They check your credentials. You know, you need a, a photo ID. You need, like, a proof of employment with, like, a pay stub and a even a letter, like uh, we had a backup letter from our executive director, but, um, and they basically, it's like you're a, a plane on a tarmac. They start like flagging you through the compound and you have to take these weird turns and they put you through these lanes and there's like a tent waiting for you. And, uh, they give you the shot right in your car. And, uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny, actually. I think every, I think no matter what you do, you, you know, everybody has, if you do anything that's rote or that's uh, repetitive and giving a shot is certainly one of those things, you kind of develop your routine for yourself, almost like shooting a free throw. You just have the same routine that you do. And when she was giving me the shot, I don't know if she encounters tons of people who are scared of needles. I'm sure that she does. But as soon as she, you know, I sort of look away. And as soon as she gives me the shot, she goes, all right, just a little sting, and one, two, three, here you go. And she starts going, very good, very good. Like, she's consoling me like a child, like I need that kind of uh, comforting. It was uh, kind of endearing. Sorry, there's like a moth flying, flying around here. We'll have a guest. This will be our first guest on the podcast, will be the moth that's flying around. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. You have to, you had this like vaccination card, which I think as I'm holding it and they hand it to me, I have to go back in a month to get the second round. But even as I'm holding the card, I'm thinking this is going to be a very interesting artifact, you know, for future gener- generations. And uh, like maybe I want to get it laminated or something. Um, but the interesting part is you're in your vehicle. You have to pull forward to this waiting lot and they write the time that you arrive on your windshield in like grease pencil or some kind of erasable ink or whatever. And you have to wait in the parking lot for like 15 minutes to see if you have an allergic reaction. And uh, once you've sat there long enough and they've deemed that you're healthy, you can leave. Um, But yeah, I mean, I feel like in some ways we've gotten so used to this pandemic lifestyle that it just becomes, you know, the new normal, right? We acclimate. And, you know, after a year of this, I, I, I... you know, I'm in the period now where I feel like I'm back in the routine. You know, I've said for me about every two or three months, I have this period where 
it's just really hard all of a sudden all over again. And I feel like I just had one of those times recently where it was hard to wake up. It was hard to focus on things. And even though I'm not feeling 100%, I think a lot of what helped me turn the tide was just being physically active again. I've been working out almost every day for the last like three weeks. And uh, I've said it's kind of funny. It's not exercising that I would have been enthusiastic about doing maybe a couple years ago. You know, I was really running. Uh, I was really into running for most of, the, most of the time in my life that I've ever been physically active, which is not most of it. But the small percentage of my life where I have been physically active, running has really been the thing that I enjoyed. But now I'm really enjoying doing these like aerobic exercises through this YouTube channel that I watch. Um, and I've done that like every day for the last three weeks, except for maybe two days. Yesterday I had a day off and then there was like a Saturday two weeks ago where I, I went on a hike with my girlfriend. So technically physically active, but not, uh, not doing my usual routine. And it just, it's sort of an obvious point to make, but I think when we are going through a period where we're feeling sedentary and we're not being physically active, it's really easy to forget what that's like. You know, being physically active feels so far away. Um, it's hard to remember not how it solves for problems. I mean, your life can still be difficult, but just having that victory, it, whether it's in the morning or when, whenever you happen to work out, if all else fails, you still have that victory. And uh, I don't know, that's meant a lot to me recently. And I think it just... Uh, you know, you have the endorphin rush, you have all that stuff, but it really just sort of elevates your base state. You know, uh, I forget who said it, but somebody said, I think it was like an ancient writer or something like that, but said, you know, every day, you know, you need to sweat every day. You need to have done some type of work where you actually put in some physical, literal perspiration. And, um, I feel like so much of what I do now is sedentary, working remotely, being on the phones, um, there's just very, very few things in my life that actually demand me being phys very physically active at all. Um, you know, even my commute to school or my commute to work used to be physical. I used to walk at least to the BART station, which is the, the, the sort of subway slash train system out here, public transportation system, um, walking to school or walking to work from my house, which I used to be able to do all of that stopped overnight. And, um, yeah, I mean, I've I, I probably gained like twenty pounds in uh, in uh, in shelter in place, and uh, you know, I said I've I've lost five pounds since working out in the last three weeks, and so I'm expecting things to sort of plateau and maybe uh, sort of crawl for a little while. But um, yeah, otherwise, I'm just really enjoying being physically active. Um, I did get a message from somebody. I kind of wanted to start with this. I guess I didn't really think about it, but um. As I'm thinking about the vaccine and sort of looking forward to a time where presumably, uh, I, you know, I don't think people who are vaccinated are going to feel um, licensed to sort of walk around without masks. I think that's kind of still up in the air, whether or not people who are vaccinated are carriers or not. Um, but I got a message from somebody from my, uh, I mean, very distant past when I was living in Arizona, um, who messaged me about our friend Mark, our mutual friend Mark, who uh, was somebody in Tucson, Arizona, when I first started playing music and playing shows, he was in a group that I used to play with all the time. And his bandmate from that uh, project messaged me and asked me if I had heard about what was going on with him. And I said, no, but the way that you're wording it, it doesn't sound good. And so apparently our mutual friend Mark has COVID. He's in the ICU now. And 
even though things are, I mean, relatively well, considering the circumstances, um, you know, things were really scary for a while. And I think, uh, one, it's, I mean, obviously it's sad and, uh, I hope Mark recovers and I've certainly been thinking about him uh, a lot today, but it also just reminds me, you know, when something like this is going on, I think for many of us, it just is the case that even when tragedy strikes, and maybe this is different for you, maybe you do happen to know a lot of people who um, got COVID, or maybe you've lost people who are close to you who have died from COVID. But I still think for for many of us, it's something that we've lived with. We've been impacted by the consequences of COVID, but it's it's not something that's necessarily touched our lives. I think most of us, you know, have probably not known people who've died from COVID or... Um, I mean, I think at this point, I think many of us know half a dozen to a dozen people who have contracted COVID, but, um, you know, still, I mean, just crunching the numbers, most of us have not been touched by that tragedy that when someone that you do know, get not only gets sick, but gets impacted to this level where in in the ICU, um, I mean, like I've said, most people I've known who've contracted COVID it's a shitty couple of weeks in bed. And even if they have, you know, sort of protracted symptoms, you know, they've avoided going to the hospital. Um, when you hear about a case like Mark, um, who's in the ICU, it just reminds you that this is the real fucking deal. I mean, just yesterday, uh, we have a, fr- a friend of me and my girlfriend, we have a friend of ours who just got engaged. And so there are a couple that we've spent time with. I know on another episode, actually, I talked about a time of going over to their place I want to say it was for New Year's. It was for some holiday. There was some, I don't know, some excuse for getting together. And it was just uh, me and my girlfriend and, and, and them, you know, kind of a double dinner date or whatever uh, on the, the roof of their apartment building. Um, they just got engaged. It also happens to, uh, to be um, uh, the woman in that relationship. It happens to be her birthday. So we got together. It was me and my girlfriend, them two, and then uh, not another romantic couple, but another guy and girl were there. So there were six of us total. And, uh, we get together for dinner. We're grilling out on their thing and we're all wearing masks and we're kind of observing social distancing, but kind of not also. Um, I think half the people there work in healthcare and have been like, I think, uh, have been vaccinated. Um, so in some ways you start to play kind of fast and loose with the rules and the social distancing. And, uh, I don't know. It's just strange. It's strange to uh, kind of the next day to hear about someone that you know, um, you know, who's really struggling right now, I, even as I'm talking about this, someone who's in the hospital um, struggling. So uh, I've asked for this person who reached out to me to keep me posted. It just made me think about, you know, I, I was sort of talking about this in terms of George Floyd a while ago, but that you know, if you were to tap George Floyd on the shoulder when he was eight years old and explain what his future was going to be, it would have been, uh, I mean, incredulous is hardly the word for it. I just mean people who were living alongside George Floyd through most of his life to think that this person, I'm assuming relatively average uh, person, uh, would become such a figure of prominence, right? Um, tragically, but would become a cultural icon, right? Or have such a huge impact on the course of human history. Uh, it's just not something that you can anticipate. There's something about tragedy that I, I, I feel like that relates, which is, you know, we live alongside people 
all the time and we just don't know what their end is going to be. You know, I, I assume on other episodes we've talked about this quote, which is, you know, count no man lucky until you see his death. And I'm not trying to say anything disparaging about what Mark is going through. I'm just trying to touch on the idea that, you know, we live alongside everyone that we live alongside. We just don't know what end they're going to meet or what troubles will befall them. I mean, it may not even be their death. It could be their finances. It could be their employment. It could be, you know, their stroke. Um, I forget the director. I'm sort of embarrassed, but I did see a documentary about a director who is sort of part of the whole zoetrope, George Lucas, Spielberg, Scorsese clan that sort of came up. And he was just sort of a real, I don't know, <laughs> uh, scoundrel. Is, I don't know if that's quite the right word for it, but he used to like uh, walk around with a gun. Speaking of guns, I have some some news about mine, but um, um, had a stroke. And I think it was Martin Scorsese who just says it was the, uh, at that time, it was the most tragic thing that ever happened to anybody that he ever knew. And it was sort of consciousness raising that these things happen. You know, they happen all the time. And they happen to people that we love and to people that we know. And when you think about something like, like what happened to Mark, somebody that you know who contracted COVID and now they're in the ICU, there's a part where you just think, why them? You know, of all the people that this could have happened to, why this person? You know, why their family? You know, obviously this is impacting their family in a huge way. I mean, he has tons of kids. I think he's got like five or six kids. And um, you just think, why them? And uh, I think the lesson, uh, it sounds horrible to say this about Mark in particular. I just mean, I think the lesson for all of us you know, if the same fate ever befell us, we would be thinking of the same stuff. Like, why me? But the real Jedi perspective on that stuff is, why not you? This happens to other people all the time. And even though when the subject is broached, we express some discomfort with it, or we express our sympathies, or, you know, the whole thoughts and prayers type thing. But at the end of the day, it's always happening to someone else. You know? And so when that tragedy, which is what it is, sort of knocks on your door. It's like, why not you? I mean, one thing I always come back to, I'm sorry, I'm like a broken record here, but you know, Tolstoy's short story, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. You know, I I took this questionnaire through work, which was like, what's your favorite book? I don't know if I could name a favorite book of mine, but certainly uh, a short list of some of my favorite stories. Um, We talked about Dostoevsky's The Double recently, which I think, you know, I've probably read it four or five times, is one of them also. It's one of my favorite stories. But uh, another one happens to be Russian literature is Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And, you know, I'm not giving anything away when I tell you it's about it's a story of a man going about his life. Um, he has a uh, accident. He's sort of, I think he's hanging a picture or something, but he falls and bumps his side. He happens to do some serious damage to himself and the injury is killing him. And he has to face his mortality while everybody else around him is, you know, not able to really reach him. They have their own strong response to his death. And in some ways they move away. They just can't understand what his experience is like. And the tragedy is it's not just that he's a victim of this circumstance or, you know, woe is me. I'm looking at everybody else now that I'm dying, moving away from me. The story opens with he's attending someone else's funeral. And he knows exactly where they're feeling. You know, he went, he attended the funeral 
And everybody sort of lives with this thing. When tragedy befalls other people, we have this internal, you know, even if we are sympathetic, even if we do feel some empathy or, you know, we are impacted by it in some way emotionally, there is some fundamental part of us that is being, is grateful that it's not happening to us. And I think especially in our culture too, we, and this is not something we do intentionally, it's not something we do maliciously, but in some ways we blame that person. You know, like we feel like, oh, well, we avoided that, we avoided that disaster. You know, I don't want to use Mark's name because I, 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 you know, this is not something I really feel, or if I do, I'm trying to combat it. But like in the case of Ivan Ilyich, Ivan Ilyich gets sick and people go, oh, poor Ivan Ilyich really made a mess of things, didn't he? You know, while the rest of us are still doing well. You know, it's like death is something, it's more than something that just happens to you. It's something that you, you do to yourself, almost. And if you live well, if you do the right things, you can avoid it. You know, like we all live with health. And if we ever get sick, we think, what did I do wrong? Well, you may not have done anything wrong. This stuff just happens to people. I mean, I, I, I might get away from my central point here, but sometimes I talk about, like, for me, one thing I am very insecure about that really impacts me when it happens is if I get a pimple. <laughs> and I always break out, like, I have an oily T-zone, like, right in my face. So if I break out, it's always, like, on my nose. Any big pimple I've ever had has been on my nose. And... um you know, for me, it's like, I don't want to leave the house. I feel really insecure. And I always feel like it's something I did. You know, like, oh, if I had washed my hands, if I hadn't eaten this, or for me, it's some totem or some expression of some fundamental vile thing I feel about myself that is now expressing itself on my face for the world to see. It's some tangible uh, manifestation of something I, I carry and feel all the time, that there's something wrong with me. And here it is, one glaring example for other people to see, right? Just a, 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 a beacon of my imperfection for people to, uh, you know, it validates some negative thing about myself that I hold all the time. Um, but I, uh, the point is that I, on some level, I blame myself for it rather than, well, you know, uh, on a long enough timeline, these things happen. A mote of dust fell into your pore or uh, whatever it is, some environmental thing that you had no control over happened. You know, that's what life is. Why does one person catch COVID and another doesn't? Well, not to diminish the importance of safety measures. I mean, there's, I think there are things that happen to people which on some level they may have brought upon themselves, right? I mean, if you knowingly engage in unprotected sex with many people and you happen to catch a sexually transmitted disease, you know, that may have been avoided. Um I guess what I'm trying to say is most of us live well, we take care of ourselves, we are self-preserving, um, and maybe at the end of the day, we just do what we can, right? That's all anybody can do. But people get sick. People, uh, these things are complicated, right? I mean, this sounds like a morbid example, <laughs> but sometimes I say, you know, when, when pe- people talk about the nature of evil, like if God exists and he's all good, why do bad things happen? That's not the issue I'm touching, but, you know, the reality of the world we live in, why do bad things happen? You know, the example I think of is why do children get hit by cars? Why are there fatal car accidents involving children who are struck by cars? Well, we live in a world with kids and we live in a world with cars and on a long enough timeline, 
the the twain shall meet, right? Inevitably, those two will intersect. And uh, it's not necessarily that anyone did anything wrong. It just happens. Um, Not for any reason other than it just will happen and does. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to bring it back to Ivan Ilyich and death. But um, uh, yeah, why not you? So maybe as I'm sitting here and I, I feel like I'm, you know, paying lip service to, to Mark and his family and, and wishing them well and, and thinking of Mark and wanting him to be better. There's a part of me that just, I, I think I'm trying to also absorb that, you know, these types of things happen to people all the time and it can happen to you. You just do what you just do what you can and, um, and stay as safe as possible. So, you know, maybe I'll repeat this at the end of the episode, but I hope you're doing the same you know, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And, uh, you know, it sounds super cliche, but in some ways you got, you have to carpe diem, man, you got to seize the moment, you know, health, you know, they say tomorrow's the only thing that's not promised to you. <laughs> Do people actually say that or did I just make that up? But health is one of those things, you know, you're not guaranteed your health. Nobody owes you good health. Anyway. Speaking of accidents happening, your boy bought his firearm. <laughs> As I was talking about that, I was thinking, in some ways, I, it, you know, it was I was almost thinking of being safe myself because, um, you know, you try to exercise as much firearm safety as you can, but you know they're called accidents for a reason. Or actually, anyway, I don't want to go on a whole tangent here, but um, I have. Well, I'll tell my story first. So I bought my firearm. I've been talking on the last couple episodes about um, wanting to get a gun, you know, just shooting recreationally, not home defense, not pro Second Amendment, not none of that shit. It's just something I have been turned on to and have thought a lot about and done a lot of research on and, uh, you know, took a pistol safety class. And um, and even though the actual firearm safety certificate that you take uh, that test is super fucking easy. I think most people could walk in and probably guess the answers and get it correctly. I also did a lot of reading and research on it. Like I wanted to, you know, for myself, I thought if this is something I'm going to do, I really want to make sure that I'm safe. Um, and, uh, so anyway, I did, I got it about, uh, well, I don't know. You have to wait 10 days, but a while ago, I didn't mention it on the podcast, but I went in, I, you know, I had been into this gun store before when I got my firearm safety certificate. Um, and I, I told myself I wasn't going to tell everyone what I bought. Like it really fucking matters. But, um, you know, when I got into this, I was really interested in like old single action revolvers, like cowboy guns, grandpa guns. That's what my brother calls them. It's not the type of gun that, you know, uh, it's not like a Glock. It's not like a, uh, not that it's not a, a rifle. It's not the type of thing that people who are, you know, when people imagine the prototypical pro-gun person, it's not the type of thing they would get. Um, it's like a grandpa gun. Um, I was really into these single-action uh, revolvers. And normally those are chambered in forty five, which is like a pretty large caliber. But for me, even I, I was drawn to twenty two, which is like a really, I don't know, people scoff at that caliber. It's kind of like a glorified BB gun for most people. But as a new shooter, it made sense to me, right? There's not a lot of recoil. It's just a good learning gun. And so I was really drawn to a, a gun called the Ruger Single 6, which is a single-action standard revolver in twenty two. 
And uh, I, I didn't just want that gun. I wanted an old model. Um, the new ones have like kind of a weird sight, which aesthetically I just don't like. Maybe they are superior, but half of what I have enjoyed about some firearms is I think I think some of them are very beautiful. I think especially the the old single action revolvers, like the Colt revolvers, and um, and even the old Ruger single six. I just think they're very aesthetically pleasing. I mean, to me, it's like a guitar. You know, some people. I guess I always, <laughs> I always thought it was kind of goofy of me because the guitars I always played were garbage. You know, they were like not good guitars, but I liked them because they looked good, even if they were a pain in the ass to tune. They didn't hold their tuning. They were made out of subpar materials. They were super cheap. I just liked the way they looked, right? And uh, so that's why I played them. Um, and so, of course, I was sacrificing something, right? I could have gotten a better built guitar and paid more, but it just, you know, maybe I'm superficial. In some ways, I feel like it's part of my tourism. You know, to me, it is important, the aesthetics. Those have some kind of, some psychological impact on art. But there's something about my interest in shooting. You know, I wanted a gun that I was attracted to physically, um, I didn't want something bulky. I wanted something that just sort of looked good on its own. And, uh, for me, it was a single action revolver. Anyway, I walk in the store to take my firearm safety certificate test. They have an old model Ruger single six from 1966. And I thought at that time, you know, if when I, it's time for me to actually buy a firearm, if they still have that, it'll be kind of like it's meant to be. I mean, right now we're in one of the biggest buy-offs of firearms in, in history, I think. And a lot of it is preppers, people who, you know, are preparing for the zombie apocalypse. But these people are buying like nine millimeters. They're buying Glocks. Uh, they're buying shotguns. They're buying uh, home, they're, they're buying defense weapons. So if you happen to be in the market for just like a, a plinker, like a 22 revolver, um, there's a decent chance that you can find what you're looking for. But uh, I figured if this was still there when it's time to pay up, actually buy one, it would feel like it's meant to be. And it was, and I got it, and uh, you get put on a... I'm not sure if this is true across the country, but in California anyway, I mean, the gun laws here are pretty um, pretty strict. You get put on a 10-day waiting period. And when that was up, um, I was able to pick it up, got it, got a case, got to lock it up, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I took it to the range for the first time, actually right after my first vaccine. Um, went to a firing range kind of near Pleasanton. And uh, thankfully, it was just like me and one other dude. This dude was firing off a fucking hand cannon, so thank God I had ear protection. But um, it shoots pretty well. It was fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting back uh, and doing it uh, probably sometime in the middle of this week. But um, yeah, bizarre. Talk about things you can't anticipate. And I was telling my girlfriend, who's not over the moon that I have this, um, you know, she's just glad that we still live apart. You know, I think if we ever moved in with each other, she would want me to fucking uh, burn the thing. But, um, um, yeah, I was just saying, if you had tapped me on the shoulder six months ago and said, you know, in six months you're going to buy a revolver, I would have uh, looked at you like you were fucking crazy. Um, but life is long. I mean, you live so many chapters and... um it's just, it's just a weird thing to see myself being drawn to. And I think it's because so much of it is because even now that I own one, I fucking hate gun culture. Like having to go to the stores, like where I bought it from, I went there because I really like the gentleman uh, who runs the store. He's just a very down to earth kind of guy. He appeals to me. I think he, he likes older guns. It's sort of an, you know, the, the demographic that that store caters to is kind of an older generation of firearm owners. 
You know, it's kind of a log cabin feel type of place. They have a lot of the single action revolvers. You know, they don't have all the tactical shit that other people get into. Uh, the prepper shit, you know, they want uh, rifles with huge magazines and scopes and all that sort of shit. And, um, and, uh, but everywhere else I've gone, like when I took my pistol shooting class or when I go to the range, you're just surrounded by people who just, you would never want to associate with in any other, in, in any other circumstance. And I was saying to my girlfriend, it actually, it's sort of a, it's sort of a man, like a, like a manifestation of how I feel in my life in general, which is I know why I'm into this. It feels super fucking weird talking about this on the podcast, talking about, Hey, I'm interested in buying a gun and I bought one. Like I, like people have such a strong reaction to guns and gun ownership and firearms. And, um, it makes sense. You know, I can respect that. I understand but I also feel like for me personally, I feel like I'm a responsible person. There are obviously some dangers involved in it, right? But I can take the precautions. I can educate myself. And so I, I trust myself with it. And as far as why I'm drawn to it, of course, there's an element that, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker. You know, I'm not the type of person that like, I don't want to skydive. I don't want to, um, you know, I don't like fast cars. I don't want to drive a motorcycle, um, but it is, there is an element of danger to it, but the thrill to me is not like the threat of danger. It, it may even be the control of danger. Like despite the danger, if you exercise these precautions, it's actually a relatively safe, uh, endeavor, uh, I think. Um, and for me, it's like marksmanship. Um, at the same time though, like, I guess one counter argument I thought of is like, well, why not archery or why not throwing knives, which is something I used to do, which is also fucking crazy when I think about it. When I was living in Arizona, I had this little carport and I cannot for the fucking life of me remember why I got into this, but I bought a set of throwing knives at like the knife shop at the mall and I just started building these cardboard tar- targets that I would wrap in duct tape in my carport and just start fucking throwing knives. And I would do, it was like meditative. I would do it for like an hour at a time. Um, so I know why I'm interested in this topic. Or, or, or why I'm interested in this uh, activity, right? Um, or what I want to get out of it. And at the same time, most of the people, at least that I've experienced, that participate in this activity, I want nothing to do with. I find them relatively odious. And also, there's people that I feel more aligned with in my life who would be adamantly against this. And so I feel, I feel like I'm in this... Um, I'm betwixt two cultures or two perspectives, right? Like, I... I could very easily be dismissed as aligning myself with people that I actually don't feel aligned with. Um, and also don't feel a part of the people that in some ways I'm actually navigating amongst. Does that make sense? And I think that that feeling actually generalizes to a lot of my life, especially, you know, our current political uh, and social situation. Um, and maybe it goes, just goes back to me kind of being a contrarian. I think there's, and I don't think, I know there's a part of me that likes that, um, duality, you know, that in my yin, there's a little bit of yang and in my yang, there's a little bit of yin. Um, to me, that feels like balance, you know, um, maybe that's cliche. Maybe you totally dig that. Maybe that sounds stupid. Um, maybe it sounds wishy-washy. Maybe it sounds like flim flammy. <laughs> but uh that's how I feel. Um it feels balanced to me. 
and uh, you learn something. Anyway. You know, I got another jury summons. You know, one of my least favorite, you know, what I was really looking, an episode I was really looking forward to that I think turned out dog shit was the jury duty episode. Um, It's probably in the last 10 or so, maybe, I don't know, one of our semi-recent episodes, jury duty, where I talked about my experience of serving on a jury, which was one of the most formative experiences of my life. Um, It was not something I wanted to do. I was... uh, uh, I was very upset when I realized I was I was being sworn in as a jury member, and I thought, fuck. You know, I felt shackled to this fucking thing I wanted to avoid at all costs. And of course, like a lot of things, it ended up being, um, you know, one of the most formative experiences of my life, you know, and I tried to talk about that in another episode. And I think like many episodes where I've, I've gotten around to a topic that is very important to me, and so therefore I wanted to be... Um, very cogent about. I wanted to talk about kind of meaningfully. I wanted it to feel cathartic. I wanted it to feel, uh, definitive, you know, I wanted that to be like the definitive narrative of that very important experience in my life. It was a fucking nightmare. At least that's how I felt about it. Um, but yeah, there was something about getting another jury summons, which, you know, maybe it's like a lot of things in my life. I'm not saying that anyone should ever be like excited about jury duty, but I think given what that experience was for me, which is overall very good. I mean, conflicted, but very good, I would say. You might think there's a part of me that would look forward to that type of experience again, and yet I have my fucking jury summons, and I'm like, God fucking damn it. And this is the, dude, this is the crazy shit, and I'm sure it has something to do with COVID, but if you've ever gotten a jury summons before, you kind of know the drill. They say you're needed at this date at this courthouse. You know, you need to call before, you know, 6 p.m. the night before to see if you need to be there. And sometimes you're dismissed. Sometimes they say they don't need you. Now, not only, first of all, they don't even tell you what courthouse they need you at. That's TBD. That's to be determined. They not only need you to call the Friday before the, basically they need you for a whole fucking week from Monday through Friday. You need to call the Friday before that Monday to see if you're needed Monday. If they don't need you Monday, you need to call Monday night to see if they need you Tuesday. And if they don't need you Tuesday, you need to call Tuesday night to see if they need you Wednesday. And if they don't need you Wednesday, you need to call Wednesday night to see if they need you Thursday. And if they don't need you Thursday, you need to call Thursday night to see if they need you Friday. Dude, what the fuck? Doesn't that seem insane? Whose schedule could possibly accommodate that? Oh, I just need to not know where I'm going to be for five days next week. You're all, I'm not a fucking doctor. This is my civic duty. I get that, and that's important. Actually, I mean, I was thinking about this as I was driving out to my vaccine appointment, which was like an hour away with this summons. I was thinking through this process, like the fact that we live in a country where you're uh, entitled to a trial by jury is a gift when you really think about it. Uh, It's a huge hassle for the people who have to fulfill that duty or who are summoned to fulfill that duty. Um, 
because it's a burden on them. And that causes its own fucking problems, which maybe we'll get to, maybe we won't. Um, but you can't, I mean, having professional jurists, which is something I've thought about, I, I it's very quickly realized that's bullshit because those people would be very easily compromised. I mean, I mean, the criminal justice system is already corrupt enough. If you had professional jurists, there's no fucking, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that those people would be corrupted and compromised. Um, so the fact that you live in a country where you get a, a jury uh, by uh, um, a trial by, by a jury of your peers is a gift, but you need to make that work for people. You know, I get part of the social contract. It's part of your civic duty. If you're summoned for jury duty once a year, you have to serve or at least show up and then maybe you'll be um, selected to serve. Um, and just from my own experience, it is kind of a privilege. It is kind of a, a gift. Uh, it is consciousness raising. I mean, you learn so much about, you know, not definitively about the criminal justice system, but it's such a unique insight that you don't get otherwise. And I guess I'm just think I'm, I'm following my thoughts here, but I'm thinking about one of the dangers of having a jury by a trial of your peers and the fact that most people don't want to do it is you can never underestimate the extent to which people do not commit themselves or take seriously things that they do not live with the repercussions of. You know, thankfully, in my experience, I, I, I found that most of the jury members took the responsibility very seriously and were, and were good critical thinkers. But there was a couple people who did not give a fuck. Like there was this dude sitting next to me in our jury. He never took notes. When it came time for deliberations, he couldn't name the key players in the trial. He would had clearly confused chronological events. He was not paying attention. And you just think, you know, juries are selected not for who's the best. Juries are selected. It's this, it's this game and kind of negotiation and compromise on the part of the prosecution and the defense on who they can convince, right? And if the, and if the uh, defense, for example, thinks that they could benefit by a sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Negligent or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a jury who wants to get this fucking shit o over with rather than applying their true critical thinking faculties to the case, if that's to their benefit, that's what they're going to get. Or the prosecution, vice versa. If they think, wow, this is a sexual assault case um, or like a racially motivated hate crime and people just by default are going to side with the prosecution, then I don't really need to do a good job. I just need to get people to, to not actually follow jury instructions, not actually think critically, but just convict, which is what they're likely to do. The odds are ever in the prosecution's favor. Um you know, they don't want the best person for the job. They may want the person who's the least dedicated. So I'm just saying, if you think that it's fair for the uh, for the defendant, it's not. Um, and depending on the shakes, depending on who, what computer, you know, the computer spits out who's being summoned for the case, you know, like I was saying, you know, on a long enough timeline, someone gets a shitty fucking jury and they either get a, you know, false, objectively false conviction or a false exoneration, right? Um, it happens. And I'm just saying, even though it was a great experience, even though I learned a lot, even though I had a newfound respect for the criminal justice system, you also leave with a newfound criticism of it as well. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of something I want for everybody, conceptually, 
even though there's plenty of people I would want to disenfranchise from being able to do that because I don't trust their critical thinking faculties, hypothetically, I think it's something that um, everyone should experience once. And yet, now that I have my summons again, it's the last thing in the world I want to do. So I don't know what that says about me. Well, I mean, it probably just says I'm a human being, right? I don't know if it says anything bad about me. I mean, in some ways, my life is completely different than it was at that time. When I first was serving on a jury, you know, I had my creative pursuits, but those were, that was my own time, essentially, right? Um, I was working at a restaurant. I worked in the evenings. So I actually had my days free. Now, of course, it sucked, you know, going to the courthouse all day for two and a half weeks and then having to work in the evenings. Yeah, that sucked. Um, but it wasn't a true impediment to my life. Now that I'm in school, you know, now that I work full time as well, you know, the prospect of just being on call for a week is fucking crazy. And even then compared to most people, my obligations are, are not that strict in that if I, if I did have to miss work, like I think now they pay like $23 a day or something like that. And I realize many people work for minimum wage, so it's much less. But I would say on some of that might average out for a lot of people to like an hour of work. That's their entire workday shot. Most people can't afford that, especially out in the Bay Area. If you just had to be on call, you know, what if you're, not only if you work, but you're a parent. I mean, the idea that you just have to be hypothetically open-ended available for an entire week is fucking insane. Now, I don't, sorry, I'm burping into the mic. I don't know why that is. Why did they sort of expand that obligation from one day where we may or may not need you uh, to five days? I would, I'm speculating here, and maybe this is my pessimism at work here, but I would speculate it's because most people aren't showing up for jury duty. Especially with COVID. I mean, one, people have every excuse in the world. They don't want to be in a jury pool selection room. They don't want to be in a fucking courthouse with other people. Um, I mean, my understanding is these things are not happening remotely. You know, you're still in the courthouse, is my understanding. Unless, has it, have you all seen the video of the lawyer with the cat face? You know, I don't know if that was arbitration. I don't, I don't know what that court case was. It certainly wasn't a, um, a jury trial. It was some sort of legal proceeding where the, the lawyer comes up and he has a, the cat filter on his face. ha, ha, ha. Everybody was sharing that for a while. I, what, why do some things gain traction? And, and I, it, I mean, it's cute, I guess. It's interesting. It's kind of funny. But why does that catch fire? Like, do you remember the video of the woman with the Chewbacca mask that just went, Arr! and she's just cracking up? That makes sense to me because laughter itself is fundamentally contagious. Whether or not what's happening is objectively funny the person filming themselves is getting a genuine kick out of it. So their, their belly laughs about what's taking place is just infectious. And that feels good. You, know, you want to talk about virology, man. Laughter is the most contagious disease you want to catch. <laughs> That's so stupid. Oh, fuck, what a nerd. God, I'm so stupid. Actually, holy shit, man. We, I, I don't know what to say about this, but... Right now, I just said S is stupid, which is a crystalliaism. But wow, dude, this is the Freudian level that this stream of consciousness shit works on. Like when you think about therapy, you know, a lot of times I always say, oh, I feel like I'm not saying the right thing. I feel like I'm saying the wrong thing. 
But what I've learned in therapy is that whatever's coming up is coming up for a reason. Just yesterday or the day before, Chris D'Elia, who's been me too and I'm saying that in quotes, you know, I have my own qualifications about what's happened to him, but, um, and I'm partly maybe apologetic because he's someone that I was a huge fan of for a long time, but, um, or at least his podcast, his stand up, eh, take it or leave it. But his podcast especially was incredibly influential in starting this podcast. You know, he's been off the radar for nine months since the allegations came out that he was soliciting minors for sex and all sorts of, st- uh, all sorts of stuff. He came out of the woodwork and just posted a video on YouTube yesterday talking about his experience over the last nine months. It it wasn't an apology necessarily. It wasn't a come to Jesus kind of thing. It was sort of talking about sexual addiction without saying the words, which is kind of strange. And I don't know. I don't have any fully formed thoughts about it. I just, it, I just thought it was interesting that I said that considering that Chris D'Elia, someone whose podcast was really influential uh, in me wanting to do this, that and Brett Easton Ellis, um, just coming out of the woodwork and posting a video for the first time in nine months just this week. That shows you it was on my mind somewhere. Did you guys hear that buzzing? You've heard about me fixing stuff up around my place, like, you know, fixing some faucets and getting new fixtures and doing toilet work and changing the exhaust fan or cleaning the exhaust fan, all that sort of shit. It's like now that I've started doing that stuff, I don't know if it's like my mind is on that, but it's like I hear my my fridge making like a weird noise right now. And I'm just like, oh, man, is that a new project I'm going to have to work on? Or like I look at my counters and I I start to notice the coloring and I'm like, oh, I think I got to refinish this stuff. It's like a switch gets flipped and you're like, is that the only thing you see? I don't know, as I'm thinking about Mark and I'm thinking about bad things happening to good people, I'm also thinking of bad things happening to bad people. And if you're just listening to the podcast, I'm using quotation marks here. Um, Rush Limbaugh died. Wow. Rush Limbaugh is one of those people that I never think about. And now that they're dead, though, you think, holy shit, man. Everybody you know is going to die. Like Howard Stern is going to die at some point. And the reason I'm thinking about Howard Stern is... When I think about me be, being a musician for a long time or my interest in music, you know, a lot of people that I know uh, who are musicians grew up in musical families. You know, I'm thinking of Megan Slankard in particular, who, if you don't know her, you should look up her music. Uh, Megan Slankard is an acquaintance of mine, dare I say friend, uh, who has some success in music and has been playing music for a long time, but grew up in a somewhat musical family. Not that her family members played instruments themselves as much as they just had a general appreciation for music. Her family was really into the Beatles, you know. Uh, we all know that we, we all know that uh, person whose like dad was into like classic rock, and that's like their thing. They're like, oh yeah, my dad played me old Zeppelin vinyls, or we had vinyls at home and listened to the Beatles or Zeppelin or all that classic rock. Uh, fucking fog hat man, or whatever it is. But uh, you know, like me and my brother were really into music, but like I did not grow up in a home that appreciated music. This is all coming together in a moment here, but. 
you know, the only thing that my mom listened to musically was like Celine Dion and Laura Branigan and Share. Uh, you know, like not the kind of shit that really gets the creative juices flowing. You know, it wasn't like I was shown like an upper echelon of musical quality. It was just kind of like shitty, like uh, female vocal pop music, which is what my mom was kind of into. Um, and yeah, and, and like we would go to bed and my mom would play us Air Supply, which was like calming, shitty 80s music. I'm actually I bet if you go back and listening, the songwriting is actually kind of interesting, but just kind of. Um, what's the word for it? Vanilla is not even the right word for it. Just kind of like blah music. Or we fucking, like one record me and my brother loved was Yanni Live at the Acropolis. What a fucking joke that guy is. Dude, if you go, like Yanni is fucking crazy, right? Like he's one of these guys who's like practically wearing a dream catcher for a fucking necklace. He's got the like Renaissance, like Romeo shirt with the poofy sleeves like unbuttoned to the navel you know and he's wearing like a fucking uh dream catcher for a necklace and he's got the long flowing hair and he's just like perpetually 40 like in the 90s he was 40 and now like 30 years later he's 40 he's like john tesh adjacent you know in that sort of shitty and maybe shitty is the wrong word for it but just objectively like kind of noxious genre of like new age meets world music just kind of like PBS public broadcast, like uh, fundraiser type music where you just think like, who actually hears this and thinks, dude, this is my shit. Like I listen to classical music and I, I, on some level I like it, but I also know that it doesn't get the blood pumping in my veins the same way like a pop rock group like the 1975 does. But it, it satiates other parts of my thinking. Like it's intellectually stimulating. It's part history. It's kind of bookish. You know, I like reading scores. Um, and also it's just kind of highbrow, right? It makes me feel smart. The fact that I know things about it, it, it feeds a lot of other things. But what do people get out of like Yanni live at the Acropolis? You know? Anyway, where the fuck am I going with that? <laughs> where am I going? With oh, I think I was saying I just didn't grow up in a musical household, right? So there, was, there weren't a lot of things, external factors forming my musical tastes. And especially when I consider my dad, who when we were in the car with my dad, I remember he had like this Toyota Forerunner. I can picture sitting in his Forerunner, and the only thing that he played was talk radio. And he listened to a couple things. He listened to Rush Limbaugh. Occasionally, we would listen to Howard Stern. Um, and uh, who's the dude? The Jungle, the sports guy, something savage. Is that it? Maybe I'm maybe I'm conflating him with Dan Savage from the the Savage Love podcast or the or the the, the sex advice columnist, but I, I feel like it was Savage something. Um, but that was all we would hear. And so you know, my dad is a conservative guy. It's strange actually growing up now to realize that Howard Stern is actually a staunch liberal. He was a huge Hillary Clinton supporter. You know, I've told that story about how when Hillary Clinton was actually president. I may have just I may have just repeated this on the last episode, but when Hillary Clinton was president at Trump's inauguration, um, she tells this story on Howard Stern about how when she was president at Trump's inauguration, George Bush Jr. was standing next to her and heard Trump speaking. He was just like, "What the fuck is wrong with this guy?" or something to that effect. Um, but that was kind of like the trifecta of talk radio, and Rush Limbaugh was in there. I don't really remember anything about him. I just remember as he. 
you know, really with the rise of Bill O'Reilly, and it probably has to do with my age too, and it sort of has something to do with the the Iraq War and maybe just becoming more um, politically conscious, con- conscious as I grew older. But Rush Limbaugh was one of those polemicists like Bill O'Reilly who was um, demonized by the left, and rightfully so, by, by the way. But um, now that he's dead, it's another one of those things that you don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of credit for from the left even though i feel like i largely align with the left i don't understand people's gloating about this person's death i mean i understand being over the moon that the principles that he stood for the things that he advocated for on some level lose something in his death right but even i i I don't know i just don't share that um maybe it's because i'm relatively unaffected by it right but i don't i I just there's something reprehensible about reveling in someone's demise you know there are some people and maybe this is just because the consensus is on this like hitler you think like yeah be happy the guy's dead right or uh Pol Pot or um, Stalin or something like there are people in history who we just all there's a sort of critical consensus that that was a bad person we can be happy that they're dead I don't I don't know there's something about the 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 joy that people whether it's real or it's sort of performative I think a lot of it's performative for social media but there's something about the joy that people express at someone's demise that just seems um I don't know. I haven't signed off on it. But what do you think? Maybe you can convince me. Actually, why don't you leave me a comment on YouTube? Leave your opinion in the comments. <laughs> That's something people do, right? What's that, the, the funniest stuff for me is like, you'll have like the models on Instagram. Yeah, I see them. Um, and they'll just be like a, a, a photo of them in like some lingerie or their cleavage. And they'll ask like, what's your favorite movie? Like they want you to engage with their content. That's what I'm doing here. What do you feel about Rush Limbaugh? How do you feel about his death? Are you happy? Are you sad? Let me know in the comments. <sighs> anyway, folks, what else is going on? I don't know. I'm looking at my notes. Well, I guess there's two things here, and I don't know whether I really have anything to say about it as much as I jotted it down during the week. But since I've been exercising, I've had two things that have been popping up on my YouTube feed. Right. The more you look at something, the more YouTube is trying to figure out how else can we keep you engaged. And, you know, the, the, the YouTube channel that I look at, and I don't know why I'm embarrassed to tell you what it is, but the YouTube channel that I've been tuning in, excuse me, more purples, the YouTube channel that I've been tuning into, you know, their ethos or their whatever is very positive. You know, they encourage you to tell yourself like, yeah, you're winning it, man. You're doing good and your best is good enough. And we're going for progress, not perfection. Um, And showing up, you're a winner, right? You're a warrior. Like, I normally like gag when I hear that stuff. But if I'm being honest, when I'm actually in it and things are feeling hard, that is motivating to me, you know? And I guess the other side of that coin is I also see a lot of David Goggins stuff now, and I'm seeing more of it because I'm actually clicking on it. But there's two things. When you actually look at David Goggins, if you don't know who he is, you can Google him. There's something about his physical accomplishments and his mentality that is uh, very uh, humbling. 
you know, I watched this video, or I should say I clicked through it, <laughs> but it was a 45-minute workout he did on the roof of some building in Australia with, like, maybe 50 people in attendance, people who just wanted to work out with him. And so he said, okay, let's do my 45-minute workout. And they do jumping jacks for, like, 15 minutes, and then he does lunges for, like, 15 minutes straight. And even the and, and then he does, like, sit-ups forever, and he does, like, uh, burpees for, like, 15 minutes. It's this insane workout that... Even people who are up there who look incredibly fit, nobody can keep up with them. Like at one part, he gives them like 30 seconds for water, and the person who's filming comes up and says, I don't see a single person keeping up with you. And he's like, nah. And so when he preaches like how he's able to do that, he talks about like, you know, uh, uh, pain don't hurt, and pain is weakness leaving the body, and you're a little bitch, and you got to fight the pain out of you, and you got to get mental toughness, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And like his book that he came out with that I think people celebrate, which I haven't read, but it's called You Can't Hurt Me. And even though I'm like looking at these videos and I'm thinking like, damn, I wish I had some of that. I wish I had a sliver of that. I feel like I'd be able to accomplish so much more in my life if I had that. There's also like the the woo-woo therapy, like self-help um, spiritualist slash mindfulness part of me that also looks at all of that and one i see the the way that it sort of feeds into like this odious like toxic masculinity thing that i certainly don't want for myself um i mean you know maybe also like with gun culture there's just a certain like the people i see who are the most into guns like they seem like the weakest people that i know it's some sort of overcompensation for like how weak they feel so they have this tool in their hand that makes them feel strong but a lot of them are so like soft, zoftig, like nerdy dudes who just seem like just kind of like dorks, you know what I mean? Um, and there's something about some of the people who really glob onto this like Goggins, like pain don't hurt mentality is like even though they're tough, they also feel like developmentally stunted. You know, like on some level, there's those people who are like, I mean, in some ways you just meet them with like personal trainers or even the casual people who are really obsessed with fitness. It's like, there's a part of when you're talking to them where you're really impressed by what they're able to accomplish. But when they're telling you like they run a half marathon a day, you're really thinking like, what are you running from? (laughs) Like you run a half marathon a day. It's almost like if they ever stopped running, they would burst into tears because they would actually feel something. There's a part of like Goggins whole like, you can't hurt me that screams like some fundamental psychological thing that like a therapist would have a field day with. I mean, I've said this about people with tattoos. This is a huge generalization. It just happens to be true in my experiences. Most of the people who I know who are covered in tattoos, they've had some sort of physical trauma in their life. You know, they were hit when they were kids or some sort of, they've had some sort of abuse in their life. And I think part of what gets played out with the obsession with tattoos is like, Look how much pain I can take. You know, sure, I had some painful experiences in my childhood, but look how little that hurt me because of how much pain I can take. And if I can show myself how much pain I can take in my physical body, I can like prove to myself or demonstrate to myself that that didn't affect me. And so even though there's something about Goggins which feels like Jedi level, like work through the mental toughness, and it's something I want on some level, there's also a part of me that just screams like, the person who's telling you you can't hurt him is kind of hurting the most, (laughs) in a weird way. 
and maybe there's a lot of assumptions there, but um, I don't know. Just one of the things I'm thinking about. Uh, I have one other thing here. I have a, a George Eliot quote that I wrote down. This um, I used to do this thing. I think on the other episode I was talking about like how I feel like I'm getting dumber as I get older, and you know my retention is not as much or is not as strong as it used to be. And maybe I smoked too much weed in my life, so I've like affected my brain. And now that I've stopped, I'm I'm like feeling the impact of that. Um, but I also realized that when I used to read, I had a notebook that I would just like write quotes down in all the if I was reading anything a novel, whatever, um, if there was a passage, passage that I liked, I would write it down. And I think part of that, you know, I engaged more with books that I read in a, in, in that sort of, I don't know, multimodal type of way, right? Like I'm reading something that's impacting me, but I'm also writing it down. So I retain it in that sense. Um, and I'm sure I would also look back on this stuff and read it. But I remember when I first moved out to the Bay area, I read Silas Marner by George Eliot. Um, I think I was maybe considering reading Middlemarch, and I thought, well, go with the thin book first. It's sort of like reading The Crying of Lot 49 by Pynchon before you pick up Gravity's Rainbow. Um, but there was this quote in this book, and maybe we'll talk about it in the next episode because we do have to wrap up here, but there's this quote that I've thought about my entire life. And I think if I ever had to actually show it to you, I would uh, pare it down, meaning I would I would sort of do the ellipses thing where I cut out part of this because I think it's a little bit overlong. But there's something here I've, I'm, I'm starting to think about this week again. Um, it just popped into my mind. Um, maybe it was actually this Goggins thing where it's like, you know, there's this, there's this mentality which is like, you know, uh, if you don't succeed, it's because you don't work hard enough, right? And people who think that luck is a real thing are just people who are telling themselves lies to make themselves feel better about how weak they are, right? And that's something that I go back and forth on all the time. You know, I don't know where I come down on that whole thing. There's a part of me that wants to believe that if you put in the work, you'll be successful. Um, And maybe as someone who's had a lot of his dreams deferred or unrealized, there is a part of me that worries that since some of my perspective has changed on that, that I'm just like telling myself lies to make myself feel better. But there is this quote from Silas Marner that I wrote down years ago. I thought about it for most of my life. And uh, I'm going to read it, and then we have to end here. But this is a quote uh, by George Eliot from Silas Marner. Favorable chance, I fancy, is the god of all men who follow their own devices instead of obeying a law they believe in. Let even a polished man of these days get into a position he is ashamed to avow, and his mind will be bent on all the possible issues that may deliver him from the calculable results of that position. Let him live outside his income or shirk the resolute, honest work that brings wages, and he will presently find himself dreaming of a possible benefactor, a possible simpleton who may be cajoled into using his interest, a possible state of mind in some possible person not yet, for, not yet forthcoming. Let him neglect the responsibilities of his office, and he will inevitably anchor himself on the chance that the thing left undone may turn out not to be of the supposed importance. Let him betray his friend's confidence, and he will adore that same cunning complexity called chance, which gives him the hope that his friend will never know. Let him forsake a decent craft that he may pursue the gentilities of a a profession to which nature never called him, and his religion, 
will infallibly be the worship of blessed chance, which he will believe in as the mighty creator of success. The evil principle deprecated in that religion is the orderly sequence by which the seed brings forth a crop after its kind. Wow. Yeah, when I read that, that shit hit really heavy for me. And I wrote that I wrote that entire sentence in my notebook. I can picture it in my mind. And I've come back to it over again, over and over again in my life. Especially the part where he says, uh, let him forsake a decent craft that he may pursue the gentilities of a profession to which nature never called him. And his religion will infallibly be the worship of blessed chance which he will believe in as the mighty creator of success. Whoo! I got to marinate on that, folks. And you do too. But you're going to have to do it on your own because it's time to end the podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please do on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And hey, we're going video. So find us on thisismpod.com. Check out the post for the latest episode. You'll see it. It'll be the first thing you see on the website. You'll see my pretty face. If you've never seen it before, you're going to be taken aback with the beauty. And if you have seen my face before, it's going to be like seeing an old friend. So check us out. This is mpod.com. Find the podcast. Link to the YouTube channel. Subscribe. Get notifications. Whatever you want. This is how we're doing it from uh, moving on forward. At least until episode 100 when we'll either keep going or we'll put a bullet in this thing. Um, but do us a favor. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Uh, rate and review us. Leave us a comment. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also... And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, go ahead and send them your favorite episode. Uh, In the meantime, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching, if you happen to do that. Uh, And ciao for now.